Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God is warning the the church. He's warning the Corinthian church about the dangers of devoting themselves to things or beliefs other than himself. The Bible calls them idols. And the purpose of our lives isn't to see how much we can get away with. It is how much we can glorify God. Well, we need, before we jump into to chapter 10, there's a, a very popular verse that we'll talk about in just a minute that most people just isolate out of this whole context of the book, but we'll get to that in just a minute. But we need a little context before we jump into the scriptures this morning because it's been a week since, or actually two weeks since we were re- really knee deep in this. Paul has been answering questions that the church of Corinth had been sending him. And and he has talked about they were living in a very sexualized, very immoral culture, and things were starting to, to, to bleed over into the church, and they were they were getting these these beliefs and they were they were falling prey to false doctrines and and they were really just not doing what Paul had shared with them and not what God had wanted them to do. So they had lost their way morally. Because instead of them impacting the culture, the culture was impacting them as a church. And uh, they were talking about things like whether they should eat meat that were was offered to idols in pagan temples. There were some of the Corinthian church members that thought, oh, that is just awful. You cannot do that because if you are eating that food that was like it is sacrificed in a temple, then then you are worshiping that pagan God. And then there were others that thought, well, an idol is not a God at all, so it doesn't really matter if you're eating it or not. And so they were split about that. And as we said in the past sermons, Y'all might not be interested in who's eating meat from a sacrificed idol, right? Some of you may even go get barbecue after this service. But the thing is, is that they were divided over things that weren't concrete in the Bible. Things that were, you know, there are some things in the Bible where the Bible says, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. But then in all Christian life, there are gray areas where, where people are disagreeing on what is right and what is wrong. So what do you do even in one church just like ours, if people have different opinions on it may not be eating meat sacrificed to idols, but it may be on doctrine, it may be on drinking, it may be on dancing or playing cards or watching movies like it used to be in the past. All of these different things that have split churches and people have been arguing about that are not specifically drawn out to the T, and people are going to one extreme or the other. And so that kind of gives you the the groundwork of where verse or chapter 10 was written. You see, our love for God and others, as well as a desire for unity, must be greater than our desire to cling to our rights. Some people, they just want to be right. Whether they are right or not, they're going to be right in their eyes. If it is us versus them, like... Our political party is better than their political party. Our denomination is better than that denomination. We all want to be, our team is better than the other team. All of these different things, we want to attribute ourselves to things that are right. But what happens when you are in a body of Christ and not everybody agrees with what you agree with? How, how is there unity in it? Well, I'll tell you, preacher, how is there unity? They ain't going to find another church. 
That's not what that means. All of us getting together, Paul is trying to give them some great advice on how to maintain unity when there are things that Christians are fighting about that could be right, could be wrong. They're kind of gray areas in the Bible, but yet at the same time there are people that are taking their right to do them and putting it in the face of those that believe the opposite way. So Paul is basically saying he's come to this point, as he said in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he says, look, I've got a right to be uh, supported as a pastor, as a speaker, as the one who started this church. I have a right to get finances from you, but I don't because I don't want anybody to say that I'm being paid to do what I'm doing. And I, I have the right to do it, but I choose not to. And that's he's continuing that thought here where basically he's saying sometimes as a believer, you can be absolutely right in your convictions or your lack of convictions thereof, depending on the topic, and that you can supposedly take one for the team and not assert your rights and make everybody else think that they're wrong. For example, the, the, the term take one for the team is an expression that came from the baseball that dates back to the, the last half of the 20th century. And it means when a player comes up and steps up to bat, he may not be the best batter, But behind him is somebody that can bat better than him. So the coach will say, okay, James, take one for the team. You know what that means. The pitcher is going to pitch the ball. You need to let the ball hit you on your body so you can take your base for being hit. And so that way the guy behind you that hits better than you can come and knock it out of the park. Now, if I'm that guy that the coach says, hey, you need to take one for the team, I'm like, uh-uh, that's going to hurt. Yeah, I know, but just think about the team. I don't care about the team. And that's sometimes the way it happens in churches that we are so entrenched in what we think is right and wrong is that we don't want to take one for the team. We don't care if there's unity in the church, if there is somebody that on these things, these gray areas that think different from us. We want to say that, well, that's their problem because I have this right. This is what I believe, and this is what we're going to do. And this is what I'm going to do. But Paul's saying, look, you don't always need to do that. So we all love to hear war stories, don't we? We like to get around and talk with our friends about what we did in high school or what we did in our old jobs or what, what we used to do. Well, here we see Paul is giving some war stories to the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth. And so what we see in verses 1 through 5, many who were far stronger than you have fallen to idol worship. Many who are stronger than you have fallen to idol worship. Verses One through five. Paul is reminding the church of Corinth. He's giving them a good example of a bad example. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. And all of them walked under the sea and through the sea on dry ground. So see, we're talking about the wilderness, the pillar of fire, and the cloud, and the day and night, and then walking across the Red Sea. These were pretty big things that happened in the Old Testament, right? And he says, in the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." 
Folks, remembering our history gives us lessons to learn in hopes of not making the same mistakes. Another way to say that would be, unless we study history, we're doomed to make our mistakes again. But that's the truth. That's what Paul is telling them here. Remember what you came from. God guided them and provided them for the Israelites 2,000 years ago from the time Paul is writing this. You know that the benefit of a good cloud on a sunny day, you ever been out at the beach or outside in a field or just out mowing your yard and the heat's burning down on you, all of a sudden this cloud just floats by. It gets between you and the sun. You're like, whew, that feels good. Those Israelites were walking in the desert nonstop, and that cloud was always with them, sheltering them, caring for them. At night, can you imagine just having this glow of, of, of fire? There's something about it. If you've ever been around a fire pit at night, there's just something beautiful about that kind of light. And that was their light every night for 40 years in the wilderness. And then when they got hungry, he provided bread for them called manna. And then they said, we're sick of manna. What are we having today? Manna sandwiches. What are we having tonight? Manna stew. What are we having tomorrow? Leftover mannas. No, actually, they didn't have leftover mannas because anything they kept would go, would spoil that night. God only gave them what they needed for the day. So finally they said, God, we're tired of manna. He said, okay, I'll send you some meat. So he started sending them quail. God was providing for them and he was guiding for them. And the Israelites, they pledged their allegiance to God. Israel had even had ancient versions of two Christian sacraments that we receive this day, which is the Lord's Supper and an oath of allegiance. God guided them and he, and he, he provided for them. Now you may be tempted to look at this and say, Man, if I would have experienced those things, if I would have been able to walk on that dry land and look up and see the wall of water just holding back so I can walk on dry land, if I could have turned around and saw Pharaoh and his armies get swallowed up, boy, I would really believe in God. I would really work for God. If I would have seen God guide me for 40 years, in the wilderness, with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day and, and providing us manna and quail. Boy, I would really believe in God. We, we think that we would say that, right? But no, the Israelites, even after seeing all of those amazing feats, they still turned to idol worship. After all the experiences, the first generation of exiles, the very ones that were, were saved from slavery in Egypt and saw these things, you realize everyone in that generation passed away. Because they took for granted God's provision, they took for granted God's protection, and they grumbled and complained against Him. But He said, okay, I'll fix this. All of you that, that saw all of these great things and forgot about me, you're not going to see the promised land. Remember, he told Moses, Moses struck the rock and his punishment. He said, Moses, thank you for leading them out, but you're not going to see the promised land. Think about this. Hey, if you are a teacher and you have one person in your class that is causing a problem, if you don't deal with that one problem, what happens? Everybody knows what they can get away with. If you have a child and, and you have a child that is spoiled, redheaded, and, and, and only child is spoiled, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about myself. If you have a child that, that is spoiled 
And he gets away with anything. What's going to happen when he gets in a situation where you're not there? Or, or what's going to happen to other people when they say, look, that parent's letting that kid run wild. What if God would have just said, I, hey, it's all right, just go with it. No. He knew he needed to establish order. He knew he needed to remind those people that what he was doing for him was not a favor, but it was a blessing. And it was his love that was doing that. And then, after all the experiences, the first generation of exiled Israelites never entered the promised land. That is sad. My friends, don't do the same. Don't take God's provision in your life and God's guidance in your life and take it for granted, and question Him, and chase things that are not Him, and in that throne of your heart, put other things that you're concerned about other than God, because He is the one that has provided for you. He is the one that will guide you. And if you put anything else, even if it's good things, in that place that is meant for God, you are worshiping idols. Well, then we see in verses 6 through 10, don't crave evil things. He says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan rivalry, revelry. And we we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Let me give you some real quick highlights of what he's referencing here. In verse 7, he's talking about when they made the golden calf in Exodus 32. In verse 8, he's talking about where there was sexual immorality, where the people of Israel were having intimacy with the Moabite women, which they were not supposed to be doing. The reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, verse 10, I'll get it right in a minute. Chapter 10, verse 9, is the Israelites complaining about the food. Oh, great. We have more manna. That was in Numbers 21. Verse 10 refers to the people complaining against Moses and Aaron and that the plague that resulted from that when the angel of death came by and killed so many of their people. Again, Paul is summarizing. Again, he's saying war stories. He's talking about history. The, The church in Corinth are part of these people, and they have forgotten about that. We have people that saw the Red Sea split that still wanted to make a calf out of stuff that they owned and worship that instead of God. They still partook in sexual immorality. They still did all the things they shouldn't do, but they did it. So, folks, I'm not talking about those people outside the church walls. I'm talking about those people that are in sanctuaries this very day. They were the ones that were misbehaving. They are the ones that were being bad. That's you, and that's me, and that's everybody else that's worshiping this morning that calls themselves Christians. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And so, folks, we must learn from our mistakes. Rather than being content with what God provided, they lusted for evil. Does that sound familiar? All you got to do is go back to the book of Genesis and remember where God provided for them the tree of life and said, eat from the tree of life but not from the tree of knowledge. And then, of course, the serpent came and said, did God really mean for you not to eat from that? Surely you're missing out on something. God's chosen people chased after sexual immorality. Their main goal was to please their own desires. Isn't that amazing? That you would think, again, after they saw so many things, they still couldn't keep their libido in check. 
God punished the disobedient Israelites and also offered a means of salvation. It says in verse 9, Nor shall we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. This is not... If you would take a moment and look under your pew, I've placed a snake for you to handle. Do you see it? No, Patreon, that kind of church. Look, look, I don't know anything about that as far as how they believe in that, but, but I'm sure that some of them take verses like this and where Paul was bitten and uh, he didn't die. And if your faith is strong enough, I'll, anyway, side trip, we're not going to take. But what I'm saying here is that God was going to kill all of them. And then he said, look, make a representation of a stake, a snake, and put it on this stick. And anybody who looks at that snake will not die. So even in the Old Testament, we see a precursor of what Jesus has done for you and I. That we all are dead to sin and we are bound for hell. But if we look to Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And so Paul still is just taking them through all of this history lesson. Then we see a life application here. When your measurement of morality moves from biblical to worldly as a leader... Your cravings to fulfill your desires in ungodly ways is the path that leads you away from God. I tell you what, I'm disturbed that there are many pastors and many churches are trying harder to be woke than real. They're trying hard to be relevant rather than biblical. They're trying hard to be like everybody else instead of living the difference and set apart. Folks, when we crave the evil desires of our hearts... And we give in to them, it will kill your fellowship with God. It's almost like, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but I'll tell you what, it's kind of like when you put the, the, the accelerator to the floor, your car stalls out because all of that sin has got all that carburetor and all that stuff gunked up, and you're not going to go anywhere until you clean it out. Then we see in verses 11 through 13, the first step to resisting temptation is realizing that you're vulnerable. I remember how stupid I was as a young Christian where I said, I'm never going to do that. (laughs) Any of y'all ever said, I'm never going to do something, and you find yourself doing it? Absolutely. I often hear people use this verse out of context because they make it sound like that this is the verse where it says God won't put anything more on you than you can bear. That is nowhere in the Bible. That is not what we're talking about here. The truth of the matter is, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, your burden is heavy. Let me take it, and that you can take my burden, which is light. I'll carry it for you. He's not putting so much on you and told, oh, here's one more thing that James can take, and no, I'm not going to do that because that will put him under. No, he's saying, I'm going to pile this on him until he realizes he needs to give it to me. That's the way he works. So 1 Corinthians 10, 11-13 These things happen to them as an example for us. So he's saying, look, guys, I've told you this to bring it back to modern day. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. And here's the popular verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptations in your life are no different from what others expect. (laughs) No temptation in your life are no different from what others experience. 
So what he's saying is, look, Corinthians, this stuff that you're hanging up on, your ancestors went through it. Now, some of us, if we're going through temptation, we will make, oh, we are martyrs for the Lord. We are being tempted in all these areas. And I'm not making light of that, folks. Temptation is tough. But you cannot think you have the corner of the market on the worst temptation ever, ever felt. Because everything that you are going through, as mild or as major as it is, someone has gone through that before. And God has been with them every single time. Don't make your pain and the level of your temptation your idol. Because when you do that, your temptation will become bigger than your eyes on God will be. God's not smaller, but your vision, you, you take your eyes off of the power and you put it on the tent. Oh, this is so big. No one's ever gone through this before. That's what the devil wants you to think. But he's saying here, look, Corinthians, y'all are messed up. And that's okay. But don't worry. Your ancestors have gone through that too. And then he says, if you are, think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others respect. And God is faithful. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. You see, their example serves as a lesson to us not to put idols before God. We must learn from their mistakes not make mistakes so we can learn for ourselves. But sometimes we have to. Let me ask you something. If somebody knows that something is wrong and they do it. For example, and I've used this illustration before, it bugs me to no end. You're driving down the road, you're driving down the highway or the interstate, and there's an on-ramp coming in. What are the people coming onto the road supposed to do? They're supposed to yield to you. But what is the law? They're supposed to yield to you. But no, what they do is they gun it and they want you to move over so they can get in. It's not right. I'm chasing a rabbit, but what's the point I'm trying to make here? Is that they know it's wrong, but they're going to do it anyway. And, and all you great Christians, I'm sure none of you are in that camp to say, well, I know what the speed limit is, but I'm going to do five over. Or you rationalize in your mind, well, if I'm under nine miles an hour, I'm not going to get any points. I'm preaching to the choir. We don't have a choir, but I'm up here. And if the cop pulls you over and says, Mr. Strickland, you're doing 56 in a 55. Do I deserve a ticket? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the law is the law. But when we think that we know better, and we, but we know the truth. We know the speed limit says 55. We know that the DMV taught us that we are supposed to yield. When we know these things and we don't do it, which is worse? Knowing it and not doing it, or not knowing it and do it? So if we know that these things are a sin, and if we know our ancestors have dealt with these, and we know that these are traps for us, and we know that this is a problem for us as a church, or as a person, or as a family, or as a career person, if we know these things are triggers for us, temptations for us, why don't we run from them? Because we should know better. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. The same temptations your ancestors faced are no different than the ones you face today. 
Here's the thing about temptation. Um, there's a place in uh, Wilmington called Masonboro Sound, and there's a, a marina there. And there's some, we used to love to go down there and just look at the marinas, look at the boats. And so these bigger boats would come in and they would dock. But the problem is, is when tide went out and it was low tide, the boats would just sink in the mud. and They couldn't go anywhere until the high tide came back in. That's what temptation does to you, my friend. It tells you to come on in. The water's fine. The water's deep enough. And then when it gets you, it switches to low tide and you're stuck. That's what the devil wants to do. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Did you know in this passage, though, the word for the way out is really talking about a mountain pass. I don't know if you've walked through mountains before, but a mountain pass is not easy. So what Paul is saying when he's saying this, he's saying, look, when you are tempted, there will be a way out. It may not be a chute and ladder that you can just kind of shoo and just kind of skirt away. It may be a tough path to take, but you can get out of it. Maybe it's signing up for recovery. Maybe it's confessing where you have been wrong to a spouse or a family member. Maybe it's forgiving somebody. Maybe it's saying, God, yes, I will finally do what you've called me to do. It may not be easy, but they may, that may be the very path that will take you out of all this temptation that is trying to work on you. And although idolatry is subtle, we need to stay away from it. He says in verse 14, this is a kind of long run here, so hang with me. So my dear friends, flee the worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I am saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in Christ? So what's he talking about here, folks? We did it a few weeks ago. The Lord's Supper, communion, thank you. He says, and when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from the one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say, is what Paul says. Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are really God's? No, not at all. So he's he's reminding those people that thought it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed at idols. He's saying, look, you're right. It's not that big a deal. He says, what I am saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and eat at the table of demons too. What do we dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do we think that we are stronger than He is? There is something intimate and holy about us observing the Lord's Supper together. Back in the day when this was written, to have supper with someone, to dine with someone, and especially in a religious service, it meant that we were all family. It meant that we all were in one accord, that we all bought into what was being there. So if there were Corinthian Christians that were not just eating the meat from sacrifices that they bought at the store, they're eating it at home, or they're with other people that agree with them about whatever that is, if we are the ones that are actually in that worship service, in that pagan worship service, and we are partaking
We are entertaining and worshiping demons is what he is saying. There is a connection. There is a family. There is a devotion when we are fellowshipping with idols is what he's saying. Then verses 23 through 30, all the Corinthian Christians cared about was their individual rights. And I'm telling you what, that is today to a T. Now, look, I'm all about we have free speech and we have a a right to bear arms and we have a right to to write what we want to say and and do what we want to do and and that uh, we're all created with equal and unalienable rights. I get that. I, I know what the Constitution says. And I'm all for that. But it, there is some point to where your rights will trample on the rights of somebody else. And that's where morality kicks in, but that has been kicked out of the door. It's no longer, I've got my rights, but let's do what we can together. Now it's, i got my rights and you need to be quiet. That's where we've gone to in the world today. That's where we've gone to in churches today as well. And that's where the Corinthian church was. He says in verse 23... I am not, or he says, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So that you may eat meat and that it is sold in the marketplace without raising questions or conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you to home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions or conscience. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So what, what is he saying in all of that? He's saying, consider the other person before putting your rights ahead of them. The Corinthian Christians were more concerned about how much they could get away with rather than how they could be devoted to God and one another. Notice that Paul does not prohibit socializing with non-Christians. That's not what he is saying. He only prohibits the meal of fellowship at pagan temples. It would be no different than if somebody said, hey, James, you want to come uh, to my church? Uh, we're, we're going to be having a fellowship there and we're going to be recognizing our beliefs. It's a real holy and, and special time and you're a preacher and I'd love for you to do that and, and to come and to be here. And then when they don't tell me that it's a, a pagan ritual. It could be an atheist church. It could be a, um, you know, a, a foreign god. It could be something they just made up. I don't know. So am I going to sit down in there and... and take part of that ceremony and devote myself to whatever they're going to do. Paul is saying no, because when you do that, you are devoting, you are worshiping demons. However, if some, if somebody, one of y'all invites me to your house or we're out eating something and all of a sudden you decide to drink something that I may not want to drink or, or, or you may eat something that, that is really not on my diet or whatever like that, I'm not going to make a big deal about it because it's not a big deal to me. However, if I'm meeting with somebody and I know this, if I'm meeting with somebody who's Jewish and I know that they have dietary restrictions, I'm not going to ask them to go to the barbecue house. What's Paul saying here? He's saying use common sense and you don't have to be right all the time. Sometimes think about the other person before what you feel like you're entitled to. And then finally, 
Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Verses 31 through 33 say, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I just don't. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. That means if you are, it may not be eating meat, it may deal with, with drinking or smoking or cards or dancing or, or whatever it may be, all these different things that we're, we're split against. And it may be if you feel like you have a right to do it or not to do it, that means when you're somebody that believes the opposite of you, just observe their their view on it. Take one for the team. Build unity. Let's don't have a church where we have, okay, this section, you're the ones that believe this, and this section, you're the ones that believe this, and in this section, you're the ones that believe this. Because I guarantee you, those of you that are above the age of 60, your beliefs are probably far different from those that are under it. Times have changed. And there are certain things that used to be your, your mama and your grandmama taught you about that is not the same with younger people. So are you going to look down on them? Are you, going to, are you going to 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 cast them out of the church because they don't meet your definition of whatever it is? Somehow we need to get together and we need to put our rights above others is what Paul is saying. The most important thing is love God and love others. And if you love others, you're going to be patient with them. The Corinthian church was serving their selfish will. The same church that was struggling because of their rights to do what they wanted to do sexually is also the same one that was throwing around whether it was good to eat meat, sacrifice idols or not. The problem was not the meat. The problem was their self-will. They wanted what they wanted. And they wanted everybody else to please them. Paul encourages the church to follow him in doing what is best for others. Will you put your beliefs of gray areas to the side for the purpose of building a bridge to share the gospel with another person? Look, I can't say this clearly enough. I'm not talking about things where the Bible says this sexual immorality is wrong or this type of behavior is wrong or or these types of behaviors will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no gray in that, folks. I'm not saying, oh, let's just be soft on all of it. No. I'm saying that when there are things that are questionable that could go either way in Scripture, and there's some camps that think they're right, and there's some camps that think they're other right, you can be right for yourself, but still give that brother or sister some grace. Still be their friend. And maybe don't talk to them about that thing, but talk to them about Jesus and what he's done in your life. I do not agree with everything that everybody believes. Probably not even in this room either. And there are things that I think that y'all probably don't agree with me on either. But you know what? When we sit down, we're going to love one another. We're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to see how we can take Jesus to this world because only he is going to change it. Will you at least be willing to be concerned about the other person so someone else may share Jesus with them? Don't get on your high horse and preach down at somebody and burn a bridge that somebody else could have used. I was talking with 
uh, Joshua earlier. His friend is here today that's had a big impact on his life. I'm so glad that you're here. And I told him, I said, look, that's the whole thing about ministry. When you see someone that comes to the waters here, it's not that the preaching was so great or the music was on beat or that the people were so sweet. Those things are great. But a lot of times it's because somebody else has been tilling up the hard work to get them here. Just as there, in some cases there are people that will take people like Joshua and burn bridges because they're more concerned about telling about what they have a right to rather than what Jesus wants to do in their lives. And they burn bridges. Don't be that person. Which is more important? Your rights or God's glory? Run away from idols and arguments. Do not devote your lives to things that take your focus away from God. Don't let what you think is right in gray areas cause someone who doesn't agree with you to stumble. And never, ever burn the bridge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you need it and this world needs it. That is what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's really giving it to the Corinthians, aren't he? He's really straightening them out. Maybe by the end of this, they will be a unified church. But what it takes to be a unified church, you know yourself, if there is one link that is weak in the chain, the whole chain is is weak. And my friends, if you need Jesus Christ to come into your life today, if you want to join this church, you may want to do what Joshua did and be baptized. I'll either keep the water in it or we will fill it again. I don't care. Maybe you want to join the church and just come to the altar and pray, whatever it may be. This is the time for you to respond. Would you please stand?